You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I'm Mark Feinsand, executive reporter for MLB.com. Welcome to the Executive Access Podcast. Before we get to this week's episode, if you missed last week's, I was joined by MLB.com's own Jim Duquette to look at what an executive goes through leading up to the trade deadline. Jim had some great stories from his days with the Mets and Orioles, so if you didn't hear it, I'd highly recommend checking it out. It's a fascinating look behind the front office curtain. J.J. Piccolo was drafted by the Cincinnati Reds twice, but didn't begin his professional career either time. Instead, he went undrafted after his senior year at George Mason, thanks to elbow problems, later signing with the Yankees. His playing career lasted all of five games in the New York Penn League, but he's gone on to quite a successful career in the front office with the Braves and Royals. I sat down with Piccolo to discuss his beginnings as a scout, his ascent to the front office, the Royals' 2015 World Series run, and much more. Enjoy this conversation with Royals Vice President and Assistant General Manager, J.J. Piccolo. Here with Royals Vice President and Assistant General Manager of Player Personnel, J.J. Piccolo. J.J., thanks for taking some time. Appreciate it. No problem. So you grew up in Philadelphia, went to high school in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. I assume you were a Phillies fan as a kid? I was. Die hard everything in Philly. From the Phillies to the Flyers, Sixers, Eagles, but uh, Phillies certainly were my, my first love. You were drafted as a catcher out of high school by the Reds in 1989, uh, but you went to college, drafted again by the Reds after your junior year at George Mason. Did you think about signing either time? Actually, I did. You know, out of high school, it was uh, it was one of those at the time. The magic number for a high school kid was about a hundred thousand dollars. My parents were both school teachers, but they said, "Hey, if you get a hundred thousand dollars, then you know we'll, we'll let you do it." And uh, as the summer came to a close, the Reds were there a lot, and they they ended up getting pretty close to the dollar amount. But at the end of the day, I, I kept my word and uh, to my parents, and ended up not signing. And then my junior year, um, quite honestly, looking back, that but that was probably a year I should have signed, you know. And it was it was something that was very minor, um, you know. When you looked at college scholarship money, I wanted to make sure my school was paid for and for where I was drafted and what the Reds were offered. I wasn't going to cover it, but now knowing what I know now, if I had known it then, I probably would have taken advantage of that situation. Now, if I'm not mistaken, elbow problems caused you to go undrafted as a senior, uh, but the Yankees wanted to sign you after you graduated. Played five games for one of their A-ball affiliates, went one for 13. Yeah. What do you remember about the hit? Broken bat single over the second baseman's head. <laughs> and that's the truth. And I still have the bat. Broken bat, I have it in a case at home. My only hit. One for 13, much better than 0 for 13, right? Yeah, there were a few strikeouts in there, too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you ended up getting your bachelor's degree in communications, went on to get your master's in sports administration at GW. Did you know that you wanted to work in baseball once your playing career was, was done? I did. You know, I, I guess ironically, I, I really was never released by the Yankees. I, uh, I was offered an opportunity in the middle of that summer to take a graduate assistant position at George Washington. And it was going to pay for my master's. And I was back, obviously backing up, catching, getting 13 at-bats in the summer. Had the elbow, had a little bit of back issues too. And I, and I knew I was not going to make it to the major leagues. So it was really a matter of... Um, making a decision, a career decision, what's going to get me further in my career. And the only person that really uh, influenced me a little bit or tried to sway me the other way, Robbie Thompson was our was our uh, bench coach and catching coach in Oneonta that summer. And he said, you know, you really, if you want to make a career in this game and be a coach, uh, we want to be a scout, stick it out. And uh, that was the only doubt I had. But the, at the end of the day, it was 
too good of an opportunity at George Washington to, to pass up, and I'm glad I did it. Obviously, all worked out for me, and uh, you know, the only regret I maybe have is I would have had a little bit more experience when I got onto the player development side to have gone through a spring training and saw what a spring training was like as a player. You went on to coach for five seasons at George Mason and GW, your two alma maters. Did you consider a career in coaching at that point? Oh, yeah. No, I, w I was very intent on uh, I wanted to become a head coach um, at the Division One level. Obviously, the, the SEC, ACC dreams of being a head coach there. Um, had an opportunity to become the head coach at GW, but I just accepted position at George Mason, and I felt like I wanted to get the experience of working with Bill Brown, who I had played for um, head coach at George Mason. So I passed on that head job, thinking that another one would come along at some point. And then little by little, you start looking at your colleagues, and they're not getting jobs that I think they're very qualified for at the elite you know, Division I programs. So I, I, I just made a decision, you know, maybe scouting is where I need to go. And fortunately, Dayton Moore called me, um, and I was just about to accept a position to go to East Carolina University. Dayton called me about a week before and said, you know, we got a scouting position open, a scouting school starting next week. Why don't you come down and see what it was like? And really, after two days, I called my wife and said, I want to scout. I think this is where I want to go, and I don't know where it's going to take us, but I'm going to give it a shot. Being a, a college player is a lot different than scouting. College players aren't, don't necessarily make good scouts. How do you, in scouting school, how do you learn the, the trade, and how do you sort of decide, I'm, I can be good at this? Yeah, well, yeah. coming out of coaching college is very similar in recruiting. You're doing the same thing. We had our own scale. You know, we had a different scale than the 20 to 80 scale. So it was really just trying to change your sights to figure out what's average on a pro scale. But, um, you know, I, I thought I had a feel for it, just being around the guys, the scouts that were uh, instructing in the program, and then some of the guys that I thought would end up being scouts. I thought I had a feel for it. I thought it was a challenge, too. The one thing that I, always has appealed to me in scouting, you're going to be wrong more often than you're right. I mean, even the greatest scouts ever uh, have that uh, – yeah, you know, had that issue, but um, but I, I just I thought the challenge of it was going to be tremendous, and I was really looking forward to it. You know, projecting on guys that are 17, 18 years old, and you know, trying to project where they would be at 22, 23. It just really all of it just you know, gave me a good feel, and I just felt like that's that's the direction I want to go. But I did miss being on the field. I will say that I, I enjoyed being around players, enjoyed throwing batting practice. You know, I worked a lot with hitters and catchers in particular. I did miss that part of it and the competition part. And the competition just became the other scouts you're working against instead of another team. So you joined the Braves as mid-Atlantic area scout in 1999. You remained with the club for six years. You'd worked your way up all the way to director of minor league operations. At that point, do you have a specific career path in terms of I want to be a GM or I would like to stay on the farm system or anything like that? You know what? I really didn't. I, I remember telling my wife, she was she was pregnant with our first child. I, I, I took the job September 1st, 1999. Our first child was born September 22nd, 1999. And um, I said, you know what? I want to give this like seven or eight years. And, you know, I don't know where it's going to go. I know there's opportunities in the game. I don't know where it's going to go. But after seven or eight years, if it's not, if I'm not moving in a direction where I'm either challenged or enjoying it, you know, maybe I get back into coaching college, maybe I go into another career. But I felt like the, the, the approach needed to be, at the time, I need to be the best area scout I can be. If I do that, maybe I'll get other opportunities. When the other opportunities came, you just need to handle what's in front of you today. And if you get caught up, and I think we're all guilty of it at times, but if you get caught up thinking about where I want to be instead of where you are, you're probably not doing the best job 
in the position you're in at that time. So I've tried to take that to heart. Uh, Dayton Moore has been a tremendous mentor to me, and he's stressed that to all of our employees. Take care of what you need to take care of, and good things will happen. And, and that's ultimately what I experienced. During your time in Atlanta, you had a couple of pretty accomplished guys running that club. Stan Caston was the team president. John Scherholz was the GM. What did you learn from each of those guys? Well, very fortunate as a group. I mean, aside from those two, and that once I got onto the player development side, we had a lot of guys who are actually here with, with us, with the Royals now, that had so many years in the game. Uh, you know, I, truthfully, I didn't get to know Stan too well. He was around a little bit, but it was more towards the back end of his years when I got into the front office there. Uh, but John, it always stood out to me, his leadership qualities, his decisiveness, um, his ability to take on a challenge. Um, you know, the way he ran meetings, you know, I often think about some of the things he said uh, at that time in 2004 and 5 and, and used the same line, same approach now because he, he was very clear on what he wanted. Uh, Dayton has a lot of the same qualities, different personality, uh, but we have guys like Chino Cadahia here, Bill Fisher, guys that have been in the game for a long time and they're always there. If I have a question, need some advice on how we should handle something, we got a lot of wisdom this camp, but they were also in Atlanta when I was just cutting my teeth in player development. Dayton moved up to assistant GM while you were in Atlanta, obviously goes to Kansas City as the general manager, uh, and he brings you along with him as a director of player development. Aside from simply the opportunity to continue working with Dayton, who you've known for a long time, what attracted you about the Royals? Well, the challenge. I mean, that, that was um, w without doubt when, when Dayton first approached me about taking this position, he, he was very clear about where he thought the organization was at that time. He had spent two months here, so he had a chance to evaluate where it was, and he said, look, this is very different, and we, we it is going to take us a while to change the culture, uh, bring pride back to this organization. And, and again, much like the, the challenges that I thought I was going to face and moving from a player to a coach and then a coach to a scout, I kind of approached it the same way. And yeah, it just, it just made a lot of sense. And, you know, Dayton trying to set a foundation here. I think he needed a few people that were familiar with him, and I knew I'd fit that with a, with a couple others. Was it difficult to go from a, a place where the expectation was postseason in Atlanta every year, coming to a place where they hadn't been to the postseason in a long time, and it was, you know, you kind of entered a season maybe with a different mindset initially than, than you had been yeah. used to? It, it was hard, and, and one of the things I remember really standing out, first coming down to Surprise uh, and looking at our complex, there was no sense of history, sense of pride, and, uh, and then talking to the players, it was just a uh, just very pessimistic look at things, and, and even with some of our coaches, you know, because they had been here a number of years, all good baseball people, but, you know, they wanted direction, you know, so there was a definite uh, difference in the field, and then, you know, how, you know we knew we were going to lose some games, but, you know, not losing 100 games a couple years in a row, or trying not to lose 100 games, you know, it seemed like a kind of a poor goal to set. We don't want to lose 100, right. but that, that's where we were. You know, we wanted to be competitive. And, and if there's one thing that Dayton's rubbed up, rubbed off on all of us is is the competitiveness. He doesn't ever want to lose. He doesn't want to ever give in. He doesn't care what we're expected to do, but our job every night is to put the best team on the field and compete every night. But during those years, it was tough. You know, it was tough, and especially on the pitching end, because in Atlanta, you know, three, four nights out of five, you were getting good outings. Here, we're you know, nonstop with, Starters not giving you innings and then bullpen not being strong. 
And that's ultimately what led us to, you know, we got to build this from the back end forward because we can fill a bullpen out quicker than we can a rotation. In Atlanta, you always had that rotation. So it, it was it was difficult. On the plus side, you got to spring training for your first time with the Royals and there was no Disney traffic. So yeah. that's good. And even, <laughs> and even Florida versus Arizona, the way it's set up here, it's very simple. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, July 2008, you get promoted again, this time to assistant GM for scouting and player development. One month earlier, the team had drafted Eric Hosmer, adding him to a system that already had Mike Moustakis, Alex Gordon, Danny Duffy, Greg Holland, among others. Was there a sense even then, that early, that this was a core that could develop into something special? Yeah, no, there, there was no doubt. I, I think our scouting department did a great job in identifying not only good players, but guys that were uh, had leadership qualities, guys that had presence. And it's a, you know, I try to describe this to people. There are certain guys that just have a swagger to them. Moose had it, Hosmer had it. You know, we had a cut, we had a handful of pitchers that they took them out and they gave you a sense of trust. Um, so the, you could see that the foundation was starting to come together, but it was really when they started moving through the minor leagues together and playing together and winning a lot together that it's you could clearly see a, a direct path to the major leagues and a team that would win. Now, ultimately, winning the World Series is tough to predict, but. You know, you have to have that approach. We're, we're in it to win the World Series, and those guys made it very easy. And it was, it's pretty obvious. They, they, they like to win, and they came from most of them came from good programs too, good high school programs. So the winning part was sort of second nature to them. So it didn't matter what uniform they had on, they always took the field to, to play hard and win the game. So it, they worked well together. Spring training brings 60 or 70 guys to camp. They all dream of making the team. Obviously, only 25 of them can. You've said that one of the biggest parts of your job is, is dealing with disappointed players in spring training. Uh, how tough is it to try to keep a young player from getting discouraged when that time comes that they get called to the manager's office or the GM's office to be told, yeah. you know, you're not, you're not going to make the team? Well, it, it, it's, it's tough in a sense because you feel for the players. You know what they've put in, and, and they don't necessarily want to or need to understand the business side of the game and making moves. And we're going through it this year in camp. You know, we looked like we had some openings, and all of a sudden we signed a few guys, and you got some disappointed players. But at the end of the day, I think the, the best way to, to approach these players, you got to be very honest with them. You know, you can't sugarcoat anything. They'll see right through it. Um, so you can, you know, handling your own kids and trying to make them feel good is a little different than these guys. And um, I, I've found that the best way to deal with them is just be very direct with them. And, and when you look at it, on opening day this year, there's going to be 750 players that wear a major league uniform from all over the world. You've got to be one of 750. So if you're on, if you're one of, say, 1,500 right now, you're close. You're just not there. But if you if you lose that drive and, and that optimistic look outlook on the game, and if you lose that innocence that you should play the game with, you're going to have a tougher time recovering. And if you lose the month of April because you're still sulking over not being in the major leagues, it's going to affect the rest of your season, and you may be two years away from the big leagues. So that's typically the conversation I have with guys. Some guys accept it better than others. Uh, we have some good examples in our system right now. Whit Merrifield's one of them. He was disappointed every year, not not about the big leagues, but just about getting from A ball to double A. He, you know, he was constantly, why not? Why am I not on this team? But he kept pushing, he kept playing hard, and he, and he reached the ceiling. Now he's a everyday player in the big leagues. So we've got an example uh, in-house here to draw on, and, that's one that I'll use with guys. We'll get back to the Royals in a minute, but I read that you've been coaching and now managing a youth team uh, <laughs> yeah. for the past few years. Yeah. Aside from the obvious of being able to manage your son, uh, what's your favorite part of, of getting away from the big leagues and going to, to manage well, that team? 
there, there is a, there, there's an innocence to the way they still play the game. Uh, and, and my son last year was 17, uh, senior in high school now. Dayton allows all of us to coach our kids. He, you know, he just it's part of our culture here that your family's first, and you only get so many years with your kids. And if your kids are ball players, then go coach them. You know, if your kids are dancers, your daughters are dancers, go see them play or dance. And um, you know, last year the the program that my son played in, he asked the, the guy who uh, runs the academy, asked me to to coach the team, and I reluctantly said yes. I'm glad I did it. Um, it gave me a little different perspective on where kids are, a reminder of where kids are, because there are a lot of good kids on, on that team, uh, going to a lot of Division One schools. Um, it gave me a little bit more perspective on what we're dealing with when guys get here, um, but it also was just fun to put a uniform back on and then coach. But it, it was one year and done. That was it. One and done. <laughs> so, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I know that you know, it was a long process of getting the Royals back to being a contending team. 2014, you guys get into the wild card game. You're trailing by four runs in the seventh inning, John Lester's on the mound, and I read uh, our buddy Andy McCullough wrote this great story, and he said that you began looking for flights to Phoenix to start getting a jump on the Instructional League, yeah. at which point George Brett told you, we're winning this game. Yeah. What was that whole night like for you? Well, very emotional. I mean, and, and not to drag it out, but the night before, the Chiefs beat the Patriots in a Monday night game, so the city was already a buzz, and it was already, it was alive. I mean, you could feel the energy. Monday morning, driving into the stadium, then the, then the Chiefs win that game, so the, the energy from that game fed right into our game. Uh, so it, it was really an electric atmosphere. And then, you know, we, we fall down. I mean, you're so excited. The one thing I do remember, too, was – I was really happy we got a home game. For all the years, 30 years of not being in the playoffs, and you get that one wild card game, I always dreaded that that one wild card game would be on the road and we don't win and our fans never get to see a home playoff game again. So I was glad it was home. I think the energy from the football game fed into that game. And then as as much as we felt like we were out at the fans, we're still into it. You know, they were into it. But in my mind, when we got Lester, you start counting outs. And I did. I, I made a flight to to Phoenix for instructional league that was already going on, and happened to go to a bathroom in between innings. George walks in. He says, "We're winning this game. We're winning this game. I'm telling you, we're going to win it." And he said, oh, "Okay, you know, you don't argue with George." <laughs> so you know, went back in, into the into the booth with him and uh, started watching. And little by little, we crept, crept back into that game, and it was just a, a night we'll never forget. It was just phenomenal. You guys end up making a run to the World Series. You run into a guy named Madison Bumgarner there. Was there still clearly a sense of satisfaction of having gotten to the World Series for the first time in 30 years or almost 30 years? Um, probably a few months later. You know, that at that time, you know, you sort of get past that and you want to win, you know, and then you go through those thoughts. Are we ever going to be in that situation again? You know, the, the next... The next day, there was a nice celebration by players. Fans came to the stadium, sort of a send-off and thank you. And I remember just sitting there, you know, thinking, you know, we, you know, there's no guarantee you get back to Game Seven of the World Series, you know, and we know how long it's been since this organization has been back to a playoff game. Um, so as confident as you are that you can do it, all it takes is one injury, you know, numerous things that can, can get you off track. So you had that sense of doubt. So it was. Initially, no, 
then I think after a few months, we're like, you know what, that was a year we'll, we'll always remember. So we'll always be able to appreciate that year, even though we came up a little bit short. I've been to Arrowhead Stadium for a Chiefs game, and that place is pretty insane. Was it nice to see Kansas City turn back into a baseball town? It was. And, you know, and being very candid, I was always told it's a baseball town, it's a baseball town, it's a baseball town. And 06, 07, 08, 09, 10, and I'm just, I don't see it. You know, we've got 13,000 people at the game, and I don't see it. But in 2013, you could start feeling it. The fans were coming. They were excited about, you know, our players. And you know, now that we've gone through two years of not making the playoffs, I still believe you know it is a baseball town now. We saw it, and people are still anxious. They, they love talking about the Royals. So you wonder whether you are ever going to get back to a Game 7. Turns out you don't. You don't need seven games the next year. You guys win the World Series. You beat the Mets in 2015 in five games. Is there one or two things? Are there one or two things that stand out to you from that playoff run as you look back on it now? Um, well, there are a few plays. You know, I, I, I know the uh, the pop up that came down with uh, Toronto game. I believe it was game two. We're getting ready to go to Toronto, and you didn't want to go to Toronto one one. You wanted to be up two nothing. And you know, we think we're down and out. And pop up goes up. Zobra sits a pop up, slams his bat down, and there's a miscommunication. It comes down, and all of a sudden, here we go. You know, and. And, and, you know, I'm sure a lot of championship teams can look back and have similar stories. Certain things happen, certain plays happen. That was certainly one of them because I thought when Toronto at the trade deadline that year, when they made some of those acquisitions, I remember I was happened to be with my parents. So I said, Toronto's going to be the team we have to beat. They're, they're going to be tough. That offense, now they got some pitching. And uh, to go into Toronto up two games to none, I thought was huge. And that play really stood out to me. What was the World Series celebration like for you? It was it was really neat. Um, you know, I'll give you another quick story. So in 1980, the the Phillies beat the Royals in the World Series, and my mom happened to be my long-term sub for the World Series parade. And that day in school, my brother and I were the only two kids in school because <laughs> my parents <laughs> made me to go. <laughs> So in 2014, my parents were in town for the for Game Seven, and I told my mom, you know, what goes around comes around. You're not going to be allowed to go to the World Series tomorrow, the parade, if we win. But in 15, they were they they were scheduled to come back for Game Six and Seven, and uh, we won in New York. So they still came out. They actually got to walk in the parade as well. So I, you know, my parents walked in the parade. My kids walked in the parade. Um, but walking up and down the streets and seeing how many people on the rooftops and parking decks. And uh, then when you got to Union Station and looked down at Sea of Blue, it was it was really, really, uh, it was special. It was a special day. How did those two seasons, 2014 and 15, change the culture within the organization? Well, for, for, in the position that I'm in, it, you know, for years I stood in front of our minor league players, opening meeting, 170 players or so, and we would talk about our blueprint. We would talk about how we're going to win and why we're going to win, and this is how we're going to do it. This is our identity. We're going to play defense. We're going to pitch. Situationally hit. We're going to run the base as well. And now in 2015, spring training, I could stand in front of the players and say, guys, this is what we did. Um, so this is what's expected. So now our players, I think, uh, consequently have accepted the, the role that we've identified for them better. You're a run scorer, you're a run producer. You need to be able to bunt, you need to be able to steal a base. We've got to run the bases aggressively. You know, when our four-hole hitter or three-four, wherever he hit at the time, Hosmer is taken home on a throw, you know, to first base, 
that's a great example of the type of baseball we need to play. So I felt like I would, we would stand in front of our players with substance instead of speculation. You know, and that culture has continued. And you know, these players now who maybe weren't with us in 14 and 15, they were high school or in college. Now they, they identify with who the Royals are and, and what it is. So it makes it a lot easier. And it's not too dissimilar um, from the when we were at the, with Atlanta and you'd sign a high school player, a college player, those are Braves. There's a certain expectation. So our job now is to continue that. You know, after two years of not going to the playoffs, you know, we've got to continue that because that's how we believe we'll win games and we don't think that's going to change. It feels like more than a coincidence, but you, Dayton, Scouting director Lonnie Goldberg and Scout Ken Munoz all have ties to George Mason baseball. You played with Lonnie and Ken. Dayton was one of your coaches. How unique is it to now be all these years later working in the same organization, going through these experiences, World Series, etc., with with guys you've known for such a long time? You know, we we don't we don't talk about it that much. But you know, once in a while you reflect on it. You're referring to a meeting, and I'll look around. Like, it's kind of odd. You know, <laughs> <laughs> probably but, wouldn't have predicted that back in college, right? Yeah, no, not not at all. And you know, I think the the thing that's allowed us to do that, Lonnie, Kenny, myself, we've never taken it for granted. Chris Widger's actually here too. He's a part-time coach for us. He caught at George Mason. Uh, he coaches. In, he lives outside of Wilmington, Delaware. He helps with that team. But we've never taken it for granted. We we know we knew as a player what Dayton's expectations were playing for him as a coach. Uh, so now that he's our you know our boss, you know I, we would never feel like you know we, we got a an advantage. You know we got a job to do. You know and, and scouting and player development has always been what Dayton has said how we're going to have to what we're going to have to excel in order to to be a good organization. And with Lonnie running the scouting department, me overseeing player development. We know how important those positions are, but it's neat. You know, there's been a couple of events back at George Mason since we've won where we've gone back, and that, that part's been neat, but that's probably the only time we really talk about it. <laughs> you've uh, you've interviewed for GM jobs with the Phillies and Astros. You interviewed for the president of baseball operations job with the Twins uh, all over the past five, six years. What did you learn from those experiences? Um, you know, it's, it sounds kind of cliche, but I've always – you need to be yourself. I mean, I you know, and, and ultimately you're either going to be – uh, what you're going to be what they're looking for or you're not you know and, and in all those instances I had great experiences very different interviews everyone was very different some were one-on-one some were two-on-one some were eight-on-one you know so it was very different um, but what I've learned is you, you really have to have a clear vision on what you want to do as an organization you have to have a timeline um, you have to be able to communicate what your plan is um, but they, they were all unique in, the, in, in and of themselves, um, but I enjoyed every one of them. I, I really, you know, there's some disappointment that comes along with it, um, but at the end of the day, you, you take a little bit out of what each owner may be looking for and you try to put it in the back of your mind in case you ever get an opportunity to do it again. I don't know how much press you read around those times, but you were reportedly a heavy favorite for the Phillies job that ultimately went to Matt Clentak. Being from Philadelphia, going to high school in nearby Cherry Hill, how did your friends and family uh, sort of react during and after that whole yeah. process? You know, it was uh, a lot of text messages, a lot of phone calls at a time that really I, I wasn't able to handle the calls, nor did I want to really talk about it. You right. know, it was a lot of speculation. I, and, and, you know, most people are familiar with Philadelphia and, and the fan base and the loyalty to the teams, the expectations. One of the concerns I did have, and I shared it with my closest family members, 
hey, if, if this does happen, don't read the papers and don't listen to the radio. I mean, it's, it's Especially just because, the radio. Yeah, just because you grew up in that town doesn't mean they're going to be easy on you. I mean, it's the way it is. And, you you know, if, if it happens, it's a great thing. You know, that would have had a lot of pride, uh, you know, working for the Phillies. But uh, being that it was my hometown team, but I, I thought in some aspects it would have been even a little bit more of a difficult job uh, with the closeness and the friends and the family in the area. Uh Jordano Ventura's death obviously was a, a huge blow to the organization, personally and professionally. Is that the toughest thing you've ever had to deal with in your career? Yeah, it, yeah, because it was uh, uh, so tragic and sudden and not not expected. You know, we had a, a young pitcher here fight uh, cancer for a few years, but you knew at the end of the day where, where that was going to end up. This one was a shock. It, it really was, and um, you know, Jordano was uh, just such a pleasant guy to be around fun to be around and energetic and obviously very talented um so yeah that i would that that's you know hopefully you don't go through it again but that that certainly was and you saw the impact it had on his teammates his friends the coaches you know the front office and, and even the city you know that was uh it was uh again you saw how special kansas city is you know the people are just very wholesome and uh very caring, you know, and they reached out, and I think their support for a lot of our players helped them get through it. You mentioned being a Flyers fan growing up. Uh, a couple years ago, you got together with some folks from the team during spring training to discuss development philosophies, how baseball and hockey would compare to each other in certain areas, analytics, international players adapting, etc. How did it come about that you uh, that you and the Flyers got hooked up? Well, I, I, I like doing those things. We've done them with a couple colleges. We've done them with a couple other professional teams because I think it's, you know, you're always trying to learn. And I, I've always felt like there's some sort of tie between hockey and baseball, whether it's the minor leagues, the international aspect. So I really wanted to, I was trying to make that connection. Well, they happen to be playing here in Phoenix. I saw the schedule. So I, I literally I got a hold of uh, Ron Hextall's email Sent him, a, sent him an email, he called me immediately. He said, I can't believe you sent me an email today. I was getting to reach out to another baseball team <laughs> to ask them to get together because he had done it with the um, the Dodgers when he was working with the LA Kings. So it just sort of happened. And he and a couple of their development guys came out, Shell Samuelson, uh, John Riley, they came out, they spent three days, they worked with our coaches, they tried to compare some drills, especially with base running. An outfield play, a lot of the movements that the outfielders will make, the break on balls is similar to a, a hockey player. Uh, the, the, we call them quick turns, but you know I don't know exactly what the hockey players turning to get back down the ice. Um, and then just from a draft philosophy, um, you know, communication. You know, they 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 communicate on the fly uh, on the ice. Where you know Hextall pointed out. You know, it's nice when you got a shortstop that can just come in and you've got interpretation issues, the game stops. He said, in our game, you can't do that. So they have some issues. So it was, it was interesting to talk to them, and we learned a lot from it, and we've, we've had a great relationship since. And, um, you know, I, I keep rooting for them because they had a young team, and at the time they were very young, similar to what we had just gone through, and he had a chance to talk to Dayton. And, you know, I think Dayton just kind of walked him through how he, when you're ready to send a guy back to the minor leagues, Hold on to him, keep him up here, let him learn, go through their mistakes, and and he did a lot of that. He's committed to it, and I know recently they went on a nice run, but <laughs> hopefully it pays off for them. Being the Philly sports fan you are, uh, I'm sure you enjoyed this past February when the Eagles won the Super Bowl. How did that fan experience compare 
to the professional experience of, of winning a championship. T totally different experience. As, as strange as that is, it, obviously you're working for the, a team, and that was the ultimate because all these years of putting in, uh, putting time in, and, and the connection you have with coaches that have just poured their heart and soul into the players. So, <laughs> totally different experience. But um, as a fan, you know, nervous, you know, just. All day long, anxious for that game where, you know, the game seven of the World Series, I was nervous, but it's like, hey, whatever's going to happen is happening. Much more calm when it was the Royals. Much more fanatical <laughs> when it was the Eagles. So I was really, uh, really excited for about 10 days. And then finally said, you know what, spring training's coming. I need to get out of football mode and into baseball. What uh, When you look ahead at your, at your career, is becoming a GM the ultimate goal for you? Or, or is this a situation where... You just sort of see where life takes you. Well, you know, I'd be lying if I if I said that's not the ultimate goal. But I, I don't go to bed thinking about it, and I don't wake up thinking about it. I just really feel like if it's in the cards for me, it'll happen. But I, I'm going to be viewed by the industry based on what I do here with the Royals. And if I do a good job here with the Royals, maybe that opportunity comes. I think most of the guys across baseball and similar positions to me would love that challenge, you know, so that's where you hope you get that challenge one day. Um, but it, you know, I'm very fortunate to have worked for the Glass family here, working with Dayton and the people in this organization. Um, so I'm very happy working here. You just like to get the challenge at some point. J.J. Piccolo, Royals Vice President and System General Manager of Player Personnel. Thank you very much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you, Mark. Many thanks to J.J. Piccolo for taking the time to sit down for this week's episode of Executive Access. For our next episode, I'll be joined by D-backs president and CEO, Derek Hall. An Arizona State alum, Hall spent a dozen years with the Dodgers in a variety of roles before leaving baseball for the business world. He would later return to Arizona, where he's turned the D-backs into one of the most fan-friendly franchises in sports, not to mention a place that has been recognized repeatedly as one of the best workplaces around. We'll discuss his beginnings, his very public battle with prostate cancer, and whether he thinks he can give Jimmy Fallon and Stephen Colbert a run for their money as a talk show host. I'm not kidding. You can search for Executive Access on Apple Podcasts, Art19, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. So be sure to subscribe and enjoy these conversations all season long. If you like what you hear, leave us a review while you're at it. We always appreciate those. And be sure to spread the word and tell all the baseball fans in your life about Executive Access. Until next time, I'm Mark Feinsend. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team.